Most adults remember where they were on the morning of Tuesday, September 11, 2001. In New York City, there were some thunderstorms the night before, but that day, 9-11, had started out beautiful and sunny with clear skies. Then people started noticing that some large passenger planes were flying too low. 911, operator 110. Yes, uh, I live in Staten Island. I'm sitting up front, and this plane, I'm telling you, it's so low. The second time it came around, I really expected it to land in the water. I mean, it's that low. I look but see the bay on bridge from my front door, and there's a When the first building was hit, there was confusion. Even the office workers who were in the building didn't know exactly what had happened, just that there was an explosion and lots of smoke. Police operator 1886, where is your emergency? Yeah, hi. Uh, I'm on the 106th floor of the uh, World Trade Center. We just had an explosion on the 105th floor. The 106th floor? Yes. 106, okay. Um, we have a conference up there. There's about 100 people up here. What is your last name? H-A-N-L-E-Y. We have smoke and it's pretty bad. This is on the 106 floor, right? Hello? Okay, we have the job. Let me connect you with a fire, okay? Yes, there's fire. There's smoke. You have a, um, we have... Hold on, let me connect you with a fire, okay? Here. We can't get down the stairs. Hold on, let me connect you with fire. The New York metropolitan area is home to the busiest airport system in the United States, with three major airports, JFK, 
Newark, and LaGuardia. On that morning, the air traffic controllers were also communicating about what they were seeing and trying to figure out what was happening. Anybody know what that smoke is in Lower Manhattan? I'm sorry, say again? A lot of smoke in Lower Manhattan. A lot of smoke in Lower Manhattan? Yeah, out of the uh, top of the World Trade Center building, the major fire. Hey, can you look out your window right now? Yeah. Can you, can you see God about 4,000 feet, about 5 east of the airport right now? Looks like he's... Yeah, I see him. You see God, look, is he descending for the building also? He's descending really quick too, yeah. Well, that's like 500 feet now. He just dropped 800 feet in like a, like one one sweep. That's, that's another situation. Another one just hit the building. Wow. Wow. Another one just hit it hard. Another one just hit the world side. The whole building just uh, came apart. Holy smokes. On the ground, there were many 911 calls coming in. Firefighters were deployed from stations all over the city, as well as police officers from the NYPD and the Port Authority. One of the people involved on that day is my guest for this episode, Tim Brown. He was a New York City firefighter for 20 years, and that knowledge and experience led to a job working in the mayor's office. He was specifically equipped to know what to do when any big emergency happened. He was one of the people who were in charge. But like everyone else that morning 20 years ago, he had no idea what he was about to experience. Real people in unreal situations. There is a man standing in front of me in my bedroom. My friend has been shot. I'm in the literally inside the river and I'm inside my car. He had told me multiple times that he was going to set himself on fire. If you say my name or try to look at me, I'm going to kill you. And he was just sobbing. He said, Mom, Mom, tell me you're going to be okay. And I jumped on the hood of the car and I held on. And I looked into the garage and he was hanging from the rafters. I had somebody standing on my neck. He's better to me dead. I want him dead. I'm Scott Johnson, and this is What Was That Like? How many friends did you lose on 9-11? Somewhere around 100 men I knew who I had worked with in my career. Some I was very close with. Some um, were more like acquaintances, but somewhere around 100 because I worked in the Special Operations Command of the New York City Fire Department. About one-third of the firefighters murdered on September 11th were from our Special Operations Command. So about 100 firefighters were from Special Operations. We, The Special Operations Command took a very big hit. And then I knew a bunch of the, uh, the NYPD police officers, because out of their 23, 14 were from there, elite special operations emergency service unit. And I, I was on the FEMA urban search and rescue team with those with those heroes. We actually went to Oklahoma City together after the bombing there in 1995. Uh, so I, I spent five or six nights on the, the, the pile of that collapsed building uh, searching with these men. And, and then they were murdered also on September 11th in a, a subsequent terrorist attack. What was your actual job in New York City at that time? I was a firefighter f- for about 18 years, and 
I had become friends with Mayor Giuliani, and he had been asking me for a few years to go into his newly created mayor's office of emergency management. And I, I refused for a while because I was enjoying my job in Rescue 3 in the Bronx. But uh, eventually in 1998, I did move out of the, a firehouse and I, you know, kind of put on a tie and worked for the mayor and represented him at the scene of larger disasters and emergencies. So it was the mayor's office of emergency management where I was on September 11th. And I know your office was in Seven World Trade. Yeah. Where was that in relation to the Twin Towers? So Seven World Trade Center was directly across uh, uh, VZ Street from the North Tower, which was One World Trade Center. And the way we used to try to remember that, because it's very confusing, is it's the building that has the towering antenna on it, kind of like a number one. Uh, so we were directly across the street from... One World Trade Center, which was the first uh, of the towers to be struck by a passenger jet. What were you doing when the first plane hit? And that was just before 9 a.m., correct? Right, 8.46 a.m. Eastern Time. I, I had gone into the office a little before 8 a.m., and I always went to the cafeteria on the third floor, and I ate my breakfast there. I had my Cheerios and juice and, uh, and some tea and... I read the newspapers. I would buy all the local newspapers and read them. This was before we had smartphones. So, you know, you had to actually go buy the physical paper. And uh, I would just blow through the papers just to ensure I was um, up to date on what was happening in the city. The power went out in, the, in our building. And for a modern high-rise building, that's fairly unusual. And five seconds later, the power kicked back in, and I knew we had lost our power source, our main feed, and that we were now on backup uh, generator power, because that's how the building was designed. But I didn't hear or, or see anything immediately, but when the power went out, the people who were f sitting at the glass facing the North Tower all at once jumped up and started running and screaming toward the exit. I didn't know why, and I grabbed this young lady by the shoulders, and I kind of had to shake her back to reality, and I said, what happened? And she said, a plane just hit the tower, and that was the first that I knew of it. Now, Scott, this, had not, this was not a very unusual thing. I mean, it was unusual, but not unprecedented, I guess, because this had happened before where a pilot has a heart attack and his plane runs into one of the high-rises, or, you know, we had the the bomber jet in World War II crash into the um, Empire State Building. So it was not completely unusual, but it was still a major emergency. You know, that's what we do, right? So, you know, time for action. You knew immediately what your job priority was going to be that day, even though you didn't know what happened yet. You're right, game face on. You know, this is what we train for. This is what our experience is. I went up to the 23rd floor where our emergency operations center was located, including my office. I wanted to face-to-face -face with the supervisor of our, we called it watch command, which is our listening post, because we had to do a full activation of our emergency operations center, which means they needed to make about 150 phone calls to bring in all our partners from federal, state, local, and uh, private sector 
to support this developing disaster that's happening across the street. Supervisor Mike Lee was there, and I kind of across the room, we caught each other's eyes, and I gave him the thumbs up, and he gave me a thumbs up back, like full activation. I ran over to the emergency operations center where Supervisor Mike Berkowitz was, and the same thing. I said, Mike, full activation. He gave me the thumbs up. He was already powering up the 150 workstations, all the screens, like kind of like a Star Wars command center, because very soon that was going to be filled with 150 people from different parts of the region who were going to be supporting the incident commander in the North Tower. I went to my desk and I grabbed my all three radios portable radios, uh, the OEM radio, the NYPD radio, and the FDNY fire radio. And I put the PD and the FD in my back pockets, so I had them with me, and I carried the OEM radio down to my car, which was parked on Vesey Street, right outside 7 World Trade Center, and right at the kind of base of the North Tower. I took off my tie and my dress shirt, and I put on our raid jacket, which says mayor's office on the front and back and my heavy leather boots. And they made us wear this stupid green helmet so that we were identifiable as mayor's office guys. We're trained as firefighters to always look at three sides of a building that is being destroyed by fire or collapse or whatever it may be. And I wanted to do that before I went into the North tower. What's the purpose of looking at three sides? From a firefighting it's to standpoint. Get, it's, yeah, to get a size up in your head the best you can, like the uh, situational awareness. I was not really, I was not the firefighter or the police officer. I could kind of take a step back a little bit. And I, I, I just wanted to get a better idea of what was happening from the outside. Because once you go in, your vision is blocked off and, and you're hearing, you know, you're just kind of in a cocoon when you're inside. And I, I just wanted to take probably a minute, not even a minute, to take a look. In order to do that, I had to run up from the street level to the plaza level. And there was an exterior one-story concrete staircase that I ran up. Later on, this becomes a famous staircase called the survivor staircase because hundreds or thousands of office workers used this staircase to run away from the developing disaster and live. That staircase is in the 9-11 Museum titled The Survivor Staircase. But I ran up this staircase as the firefighters and, and police officers did all day long. And I looked out over the plaza in between the World Trade Center complex, and it was littered with debris that was on fire, black smoke, fire, parts of the building, plane parts, and if you remember in the video, the, all the papers from the offices that are floating and fluttering down, that's exactly what it looked like. It looked like Armageddon. And at this point, I, I started to realize that this is maybe a little bit bigger than a, a small Cessna. I went into the North Tower at that level, at the plaza level. And I had to go down one level inside the building to get to the command station. And there was an escalator, and there were hundreds of office workers 
like a funnel trying to get on this escalator to go down and to go down again to go underground and escape. That's the way that the security guys and gals and the police officers were directing them to evacuate. And I noticed in this moment, you know, what we always hear about is people pushing and screaming and climbing over each other and trampling each other in these types of situations, causing more injuries and death. But in this day, on this day, what I saw with my own eyes was the opposite. It was people helping each other. Regular office workers, not cops, not firemen. If someone was pregnant, obese, injured, or disabled, there were four or five regular office people helping that person. And I remember in my head thinking, no matter what happens today, we're going to be okay because that's the true human spirit that I'm witnessing right now. When someone trips and falls next to us, we all reach down to help them up and give them a helping hand. That is 99.9% of humanity. And I was witnessing it in front of my eyes in this situation. Not understanding what was to come, I still carried that confidence with me through the rest of the day. I got into that crowd and I went down the escalator. And as the lobby revealed itself to me, I could see hundreds of firefighters in their turnout gear with the yellow reflective stripes on their gear. And there were hundreds of them awaiting their orders to go up. And I completely understood in this moment why the cops teasingly called us bumblebees. Because when we all get together by the hundreds like that, it looks like a hive. And that's exactly what I was looking at, a hive of firefighters awaiting their orders to go up. I got to the bottom of the escalator, and right in front of me was a bumblebee. Firefighter Chris Blackwell from Rescue 3, where I had worked in the Bronx for, with him for seven years. Not only was Chris a Bronx Harlem fireman who, you know, we weren't really the reverent guys. We didn't really shave the way we were supposed to, and we didn't follow the rules we were supposed to. Our gear was all tattered and torn and burned up, and the helmet kind of sits a little off on your head because it's been in so many fires and it's all burned up. And that was Chris, the bumblebee in front of me. And not only did we work in the same firehouse together, but we worked on the same shift. So we were very, very close. We had been through tremendous, difficult situations before, and we'd always come through them relatively uninjured. And I loved this man like my brother. And we always greeted each other the same way. We came face to face, just a couple of feet away from each other, and Chris always had the unlit stub of a cigar in his mouth, in the corner, right corner of his mouth. We came right up to each other. We came to attention. He reached up with his right hand, and he took the stub of a cigar out of his mouth. And we le leaned in, and we kissed each other on the lips. And then we stood back at attention, and he put the cigar back in his mouth. And... 
of course, I love this man, and this is why I kissed him. But we just thought it was the funniest thing that it grossed all the other firemen out. And so that's why we did it. I think it's hilarious too. You know, you're talking about the cigar in his mouth and a firefighter, a tough guy. It's all stereotypical yeah. New Yorker up until the kiss. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's one, it's wonderful. It's just, it, it was just, it's just, and, and we did this in, in the most horrific of situations just to kind of bring people back to reality, you know? And we did this on the morning of September 11th. He was the first bumblebee I ran into. And relating this story to his family later on gave them such relief and warmth that Chris knew how much he was loved. After Chris and I greeted each other, he said to me, Timmy, this is really bad. And I said, I know, Chris. Be careful. I love you. And he said, I love you too. And he turned around and he went in the stairwell, and he went up. And that's a really important part of the story because he said those words to me, Timmy, this is really bad. And for us to say that to each other after all these years in the Special Operations Command of the Bronx Harlem Fire Department, those words mean something. He knew it, Scott. He knew it. But you know what he did? He turned around and he went in the stairwell and he fulfilled his oath. His oath was to help people he didn't know at the risk of his own life. And he knew that he, there was a pretty good chance that when he went in that stairwell, he would not come back down. But he still did it. Someone yelled my name across the bumblebees across the lobby. And I looked over and I could see my best friend, Captain Terry Hatton, Captain of Rescue One, the Manhattan Special Operations Elite. He was my best friend and he was put in that position because he was that good. He was the boss of Rescue One. He was the future of the New York City Fire Department. And the big chiefs were grooming him so that one day he could be one of the big chiefs and run the New York City Fire Department. That's how much Terry Hatton was respected. He had the experience and the knowledge hard to find in one person. And he was always thinking six, seven steps ahead of everyone else. I ran over to my best friend he was easy to spot because he was 6'4". With his helmet and boots on, he was 6'7", six, 6'8". Six, and I ran to him, and he opened his arms up wide, and I ran into his chest, and I wrapped my arms around him, and he leaned down, and he wrapped his arms around me, and he squeezed me tight, and he kissed me on my right cheek. And he said in my ear, I love you, brother. I may never see you again. And I blew him off because we had done so many very, very dangerous things together. Things that no one should ever come back from. Because I trusted him and I followed him wherever we went. And we always did it. And we always came back. But Terry was a smart 
smart one. And he knew it. And he said it to me. I love you, brother. I may never see you again. And he kissed me on the cheek. After saying that to me, he turned around and he went in the stairwell with his men, the men of Rescue One, and he went up. The men of Rescue One made it to the 83rd floor of the North Tower, where they were fighting the fire and saving the lives of people who were burned and broken. When there was an interior collapse, not the big collapse, but an early interior collapse, and they got trapped. And I did not witness this myself. I, this was told to me later on by firefighters who did witness that my best friend, Captain Terry Hatton, was screaming into the radio the worst thing a fireman could ever say or hear. Mayday, mayday, mayday. Rescue one is trapped. Mayday, mayday, mayday. Rescue one is trapped. 83rd floor. The elite Manhattan firefighters, whose primary job was to save other trapped firefighters, were now trapped themselves. That's how bad this was. One of his men made it down to the lobby, minus his helmet. His head was full of blood, and he was begging for other firefighters to go back up and help him to get his brothers out of being trapped. I did not witness any of this because I would have been in that stairwell going up. A firefighter came into the lobby where we were screaming, another plane hit just, just hit the South Tower. And that's the first I knew of it. Something I've been recently making a deliberate effort with is to read more. There are lots of books I want to read, and I try to read every day, even if it's just a few pages. That little bit each day adds up, and it can make a big difference. It's like taking care of your gut. Even though it's not big, it supports the health of your whole body. Seeds DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic benefits not just your gut and your heart, which aren't outwardly visible, but your skin too, which you can see. Every morning it's the same thing. Two capsules of Seed DSO-1. And sometimes I wonder, is it normal to feel this great? It helps support digestive health with optimal gut bacteria levels. And thankfully, that's all backed up by science. And all the supporting data is on their website. If you're trying to avoid sugar, soy, peanuts, or gluten, you're good to go. And I was reading the literature and I thought, you had me at vegan because it's that too. And if you have kids, DSO-1 is the first multi-strain symbiotic shown to be tolerable and health-promoting in a cohort of children aged 3 to 17. And you can use this promo code to give it a try. Trust your gut with Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com slash what and use code 25what to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO1 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash what code 25what. I don't know how many other people do this, but I like to plan my weekly meals. Maybe I'm just weird, but I like quick and easy. That's just one of the benefits you can get with Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. 
One of the dishes I recently had was the Green Goddess Falafel Bowl. Oh, I loved it. The falafel was seasoned perfectly, and I love how crispy it is on the outside, but really moist on the inside. It's a signature dish of Enat Admoni. She's known around the world as a chef. You've probably seen her on TV. And her dishes are made right here in Florida, so I'm supporting local business, and I love that. And the convenience of Cook Unity is crazy. I mean, I've got podcast episodes to produce. I don't have time for cooking. These meals are delivered fully cooked. So when it's time to eat, I pick a meal based on my mood for that day. I heat it for a few minutes and enjoy. The menus are updated every week, so there's always something new to try. You can choose from over 350 meals based on your dietary needs or taste preferences, or go wild and have Cook Unity pick for you, because every meal is just amazing. Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef-level quality, and endless variety of Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com what, or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code what, or going to cookunity.com what. The leadership huddled up, and it was decided that myself and Assistant Chief Donald Burns would go to the South Tower to open that command post and take command of the second greatest disaster in the history of the city of New York, occurring at the same time, right next door to the first greatest disaster to hit the city of New York. Chief Burns... 41 years in the New York City Fire Department, possibly the most respected chief in the New York City Fire Department at that time. Another big guy, 6'4". And if you saw in the, or you looked up in the dictionary, Irish fire chief, it would be his mug because he had the red rosy cheeks, the permanent lines of experience in his face, from his long nights standing outside in minus 10 degree snow and ice fighting fires. Every line in his face he earned. And Chief Burns grew up in the outer boroughs, so he had a little bit of a thicker New York accent. And he only talked out of the right side of his mouth. And he talked fast. And I said, Chief, what do you need me to do? As we ran from the North Tower to the South Tower. He said, Timmy, there's not much you and I can do. I've ordered a fifth alarm, another 350 firefighters. But the first fifth alarm is going to the other building. We got to wait. Do your best and be careful. And I saluted Chief Burns, my friend. And I said, yes, sir. A woman came over to us screaming that there were people trapped in an elevator. Chief Burns gave me the nod, go with her. Chief Burns went to the command post. I followed this lady, and she took me right to the elevator banks of the South Tower. She took me to one elevator specifically, and the hoistway doors to the elevator were open, and you could see into the shaft. But the elevator car was stuck at the top, and you, just like one foot. You could see into the elevator car. You could see all the people's feet who were trapped, and they were screaming. And I could see the men's suit jacket and dress shirt as their hands and wrists were trying to pull the elevator down 
another foot or two so they could get out. And they were screaming. I did not know at the time that they had just taken a 70-story freefall because when Flight 175 slammed into the South Tower, it snapped the cable and their elevator free fell 70 floors. But the, the emergency brakes on the elevator worked as they were supposed to and stopped it before it hit the concrete pit and saved their lives. But now those elevator brakes were locked on and they were not letting go. And there was no way those that human strength was going to move that elevator car. In addition to all of this, the elevator pit below them was full of jet fuel that was on fire and they were getting burned. And what they needed was a firefighter, not a mayor's office guy. In my kind of panic, I guess, at seeing this, I mean, this all took five seconds, right? I, I turned to my right to see if I could just see something or someone to help. And my shoulder hit a person and I looked over and it was a bumblebee. And I looked up at his face and it was firefighter Mike Lynch from Ladder 4, a young young firefighter who I had helped train in the 90s, early 90s. He was my friend. And he was a real good firefighter. And in fact, he was so well respected that Captain Terry Hatton was recruiting him to go to the elite special operations rescue one. So we had great confidence and faith in firefighter Michael Lynch from Ladder 4. And he put his hand on my shoulder, my right shoulder, and he squeezed it a little bit. And he said, Timmy, I got it. Three words, I got it. Between firefighters who knew each other and trained together and ex had experience together, three words that me meant he had the training, the experience, the tools and equipment because he was wearing his turnout gear. He had his hand tools and he brought a whole fire truck ladder four, full of tools with him, a rolling toolbox. He's what those people needed. Timmy, I got it. Over my OEM radio, an urgent message, urgent, 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 third plane incoming, confirmed by the FBI, it's ours, impact imminent. Get in the stairwell, take cover. Urgent, urgent, urgent. If planes keep crashing into us, we can't do our job and save people. I said to firefighter Mike Lynch, my friend Mike, I got to go. You got this. I ran to the command post. I picked up a landline that I found that worked, and I dialed zero for operator, and she picked up right away. And I said, I'm with Mayor Giuliani in the World Trade Center. I need to talk to the White House immediately. She tried to get through to the White House. She couldn't get through. I said, then I need to talk to the Pentagon. And she said, the Pentagon's under attack. And that's the first we knew of it. Our situational awareness was about zero. I talked to New York State Emergency Management Office, and they promised me that the fighter jets had already been scrambled and were coming to us as fast as they could to protect us overhead. And that's what I wanted. It was the first time in the history of the New York City Police Department, New York City Fire Department, Port Authority Police Department, 
uh, an army of 50,000 or more that we needed help from United States military. The lobby was filling up with people who were injured and they were laying all over the lobby and it was impeding our evacuation progress. Imagine if you're an injured person and you were on the 78th floor, you're burned or you're broken or bloody and your only way out is to go down 70, 80 floors around and around and around and around and around in a dark, smoky, wet stairwell. And then you get to a door that says lobby on it and you push the door open and it's light and dry and you see cops and firemen and you think, I made it, I'm safe, they're going to take care of me. And so these people, when they made it to the lobby, they had nothing left and they collapsed all over the lobby. So Chief Burns ordered me to go find the paramedics and bring the paramedics in because all the firefighters and police officers were going up. So I, that's why I left the South Tower. I went out on Liberty Street and the first thing I saw burned into my visual memory forever out of my left eye was a f dead firefighter in the street who had been crushed by a woman who fell or jumped from the upper floors and instantly killed him. It had just happened seconds before I went out and his buddies were yanking at what was now two bodies that became one, trying to pull them out, out of danger, thinking they could save them, but it was too late. I heard someone yell my name and I looked over and it was firefighter Mike Lynch who was at his truck ladder four and he was getting what we call the jaws of life off. It's the spreaders we use in a car accident. Very powerful and they're run by a hydraulic motor and that motor is really heavy. So Michael was yelling to me to go help him take that motor off the truck. And so I started running toward him but another firefighter got there first and Mike waved to me and I waved back to Mike and it would be the last time I saw my friend. I broke off and I ran to the paramedics. I found the paramedics, um, Captain Charlie Wells, my friend. And I said, we have to move triage into the North lobby. And he said, okay. And they got their stuff together. We put on our helmets or they put on their helmets and we loaded the stretcher up with all their, I call it doctor equipment. And myself and three paramedics with the stretcher went running from West Street back up to Liberty Street, heading back into the South Tower lobby. We were running on the sidewalk right along and very close to the Marriott Hotel, which was Three World Trade Center, which adjoined the South Tower to World Trade Center. As we rounded the corner, because the South Tower was set back on the sidewalk a bit, we were about 20 feet from the door of the South Tower when it collapsed. We were still outside so we could hear it. The first indication was a very loud crack 
like lightning struck right next to you. It was so loud that it reverberated through the canyons of lower Manhattan. But we knew, I mean, it was so loud, we knew what it was. Without saying anything, anybody that heard that knew what it was. Did you ever expect one of the towers no. to actually collapse? No. Our fire department expert on collapse, Chief of Special Operations Ray Downey, had the conversation with the mayor in the North Lobby early on. And his expert opinion, based on fact and experience, was that the fire would burn up and it would burn itself out. There was no way we could get enough water up there to physically put the fire out, but it would just burn up the rest of the building and then eventually it would go out when it had no more fuel. And that's truly what, what Chief Downey believed at that time, and that's what any collapse expert in America would, would say. So it was completely unexpected. But for whatever reason, I guess it was so loud that we knew. And we're trained as firefighters. You can never outrun a collapse. You have to seek immediate cover. So I yelled to the paramedics, follow me into the Three World Trade Center, which was the Marriott Hotel, which was adjoining. We had just run by the doors into the Marriott, and I knew we had just run by them. And I knew that we had to get into that building to protect us from the collapsing tower. So we ran in those doors, and it was as clear as the room all of us are sitting in right now. And with the snap of your fingers, it went pitch black. And I hit the ground. We were in the restaurant called the Tall Ships Restaurant, which was the restaurant in the lobby of the Marriott Hotel. Everything that wasn't nailed down was blowing in our faces because two, two World Trade Center was collapsing on three World Trade Center and three World Trade Center was now collapsing around us. You couldn't see because of the dust. You couldn't breathe because of the dust. The dust was so thick, it was filling up your nose and ears and mouth and eyes. And I was trying to stick my mouth in my shirt to try and filter some of the dust. I'm on all fours and I'm crawling away from where the collapse is coming at us as fast as I can. And I know from my experience that if I can find a vertical column, it's the only chance I have at living. Because I know from experience in collapses that we find people alive next to vertical columns, which are the strongest part of any building. And so I'm crawling as fast as I can, desperate to survive, and I found a vertical column, and I wrapped my arms around this huge column, and I squeezed with all my might, and this wind is lifting my legs off the ground. It blew the helmet off my head, and I'm trying with all my strength to hold on to this column because I know it's the only shot I have at living. And I just waited to be crushed. And my thought in that moment was that I wasn't ready to die. I'm not afraid of dying. I just wasn't ready to die. And I wanted to hold my brother one more time 
and my family one more time and tell them I love them. And I just waited to be crushed. And as fast as it started, Scott, it stopped. And it was less than 30 seconds, the whole thing. And I was alive. I crawled desperately to try to get back to Liberty Street where I had come in. But, of course, the landscape was completely different now because the building collapsed. You know, you still couldn't see. You still couldn't breathe. I came to a truck, and the, the engine was running. It was a diesel, I could, I could tell. And the headlights were on. You would think I would recognize it if it was a fire truck. I did not recognize it as a fire truck. And for whatever reason, in my panic and desperation to get out, all I could think of was that it was a truck bomb. And so I turned around and I went deeper into the restaurant, deeper into the hotel, trying to get away from what I perceived was a truck bomb, which it turned out not to be. And I came to a metal roll-down gate that was meant to separate the restaurant from the hotel lobby when the restaurant was closed. And in the collapse, this metal roll-down gate had come down. But I was pretty determined to go through it. And so I reached my fingers under it and lifted it up. And it lifted up. And when I did, all these fingers came from the other side, from people who were trapped on the other side of it. And together, we lifted this roll-down gate up. And I said, we have to go that way. There was about 15 people, firefighters and civilians, who they were rescuing. And they said, there is no that way. It's gone. The collapse had come in right behind them in the lobby of the Marriott Hotel. It had killed half the people they were with and taken them and their bodies in the floors down seven stories. So right behind them was a seven-story drop. And they were on this ledge between this seven-story drop and the metal roll-down gate. So when we opened the gate up, when we pulled the gate up, it was their salvation, and now my salvation. And we went, turned around again and went back into the what was left of the restaurant, and we crawled across the steel in the rubble, and one of the ladies in the line we had formed saw a really bright flashlight on the outside and she could hear the firefighter yelling, come, come to me. And so we like formed a chain and we all followed and made our way out to this firefighter. And that's the story of my survival. There were about 35 people in that area of the Marriott hotel who survived which was very unusual. There were really only two pockets of people in the 18-acre complex who survived. They did a, a scientific study of that space where we were, and it was determined scientifically that that wind that tried to blow me out into the street that lifted my legs up off the ground was 185 miles per hour. And so I have no idea how I was able to hold on to that steel column other than to say that 
God did not want me at this point in my life. There, there are too many steps there that kept me alive for me to think anything other than he with the capital H was not ready to welcome me into his kingdom just yet. And over the last 20 years, I think this is exactly why. Because he wanted me to tell the story of the heroes. The 343 firefighter heroes. The 37 Port Authority police heroes. The 23 NYPD police heroes. Who all fulfilled the oath they had taken when they became firefighters or police officers, that they would give their life if it meant saving the life of someone they didn't know. And that's what these firefighters and police officers did, right? They all did what Captain Terry Hatton and firefighter Chris Blackwell and Captain Patty Brown did. They went in that stairwell and went up knowing that they probably would not come back. And I will, as long as I have a voice, Scott, I will always speak of them. I will speak their names. I will speak of their heroism. I will speak of the families they left behind and the children that missed them as they grew up. After this all happened, you went to visit the widow of firefighter Mike Lynch, who went to yeah. save these people in the elevator. How long after that? Did it happen? How long after 9-11 did you visit with her and, and what happened there? Right, yeah. I mean, it, it, was a, it was a matter of days. I mean, we were reeling, right? I, I mean, there's no other way to say it. it. It was, you know, it was us trying to manage chaos, but the chaos was so big that all we could do was manage our little, kind of little piece of it. And like, how do you eat an elephant? one bite at a time, and that's where we were at. We were so overwhelmed. But one thing caught my attention. There had become, or, or there had been a rumor swirling around that Ladder 4 was not saving people's lives. Instead, they were looting the stores, if you can believe someone actually published this. And Ladder 4 was where Michael Lynch, Firefighter Michael Lynch, was assigned. And so when I heard that rumor and that it was getting into the media, I panicked a little bit and I said, Michael's widow, Denise, has to hear from me what her husband and Ladder 4 was doing on the day of September 11th because I was with them. I witnessed it. And she has to know that this rumor is a lie. So I got in my, my new, because uh, our, all our cars were destroyed, but I, ha I had a new um, like undercover police car thing. And I ran and I jumped at it and I went lights and sirens out to Long Island to Michael's widow Denise's home. And I went into her living room and sat on the couch with her. And I described the heroics of her husband in his last moments. 
in the way I described him in the lobby of the South Tower at that elevator where those poor people were trapped. When he said to me, Timmy, I got it. He may as well have had angel's wings coming out of his back because he was the angel sent by God to save the lives of those people. He just appeared out of nowhere at my side. When I said in my head, what these people need is a real firefighter, not a mayor's office guy. He just like appeared like an angel out of nowhere. And I told Denise this story and that he was working on saving those lives. Later on, we find out that he saved three women from that elevator before the South Tower collapsed. So we know his last act of heroism as the angel firefighter Michael Lynch was fulfilling his oath, saving the lives of people he didn't know. Unfortunately, he couldn't get them all out, but we know he got three out. When I was saying goodbye to Denise and her two little boys who were under two years old, who were running around the living room, you know, they're two, they don't know what's going on. I gave her my contact info and I said, one day when your sons are older and they want to know about their hero dad, please ask them to find me. I'd be happy to talk to them. Well, about a year ago, I got an email from Michael Francis Lynch Jr., 22 years old, asking me if I would tell him about his dad. And I said, yeah, let's meet down at my favorite place down at the World Trade Center now called O'Hara's Pub. We'll walk over to your dad's name on, on the memorial and we'll talk about your dad. And just like his dad, 6'4", handsome as could be, with a steel soul, confident as ever, and 22-year-old, that his demeanor and appearance was like he was a 40-year-old man. And I told him about his dad and his dad's heroism in the last minute. And young Michael had not had a good um, experience with father figures growing up. He was kind of the man of his house. Men came and went in his life. So I promised him in this moment that I was his forever. And that I would mentor him and help him and be his friend until my last breath. And so that's how it's been. He's an incredible young man. His dad would be extremely proud. And again, maybe this is why, you know, God spared me that day too. I asked Michael, he already, had, he already earned his bachelor's degree. That's, this is how good this young man is. But now he wanted to go into the military and be an army ranger. And I said, that's like, that's awesome, man. That's that's a great goal, and I understand your passion that you don't want other young kids like you to have to grow up the way you grew up, 
because we were attacked on American soil. I said, but don't sign anything, please. Not right away. Come meet some of my friends, because I had made a lot of friends over the last 20 years in the military and in the intelligence community. I said, I have some very cool friends. And so for about a year, a little less than a year, eight months probably, we kind of took a tour of the East Coast military facilities together. Every person I introduced to Michael took him under their wing and gave them their cell phone number and their email and said, I want to help you. Michael now has this whole community from people in the FBI and the CIA and other intelligence agencies and the special forces in the Rangers and the SEALs. He has some very cool friends. He has their phone numbers that he can reach out to if he has questions. And after all of this and after his kind of, I guess, his master's in education, I said, so what do you want to do now? And he said, well, I want to be a SEAL. And I said, that's kind of where I thought you would wind up. So he is working very hard with some former SEALs right now because it's, especially now, it's going to be very, very difficult for him to get through it, to, to earn his trident. For, well, for many reasons, let's just say. So I will be there with him through thick and thin. We all will be. And I feel like he has been one of the greatest gifts I've had in my life. And I'm so proud of him. His dad would be so proud of him. And I, and I love that our community has adopted him as we have with many of the young, young people, the, the young people without me knowing, I found out later on, but they gave me the, um, they gave me the nickname, the shepherd, you know, if they need help, any of these young people, they know they can call me and I can give them the best of advice that maybe their dad would have given them. As proud as you are of Mike Jr., I'm sure his dad would be just as grateful to you for stepping in and, uh, and taking that role and giving him some direction. Your, your empathy and compassion is just breathtaking. Yeah, thank you. That's my mom. That's my mom. Yeah, she she left the, she left us last year, you know, but she did instill that in all five of her children and and uh you know, that's you, you learn that stuff when you're a kid and I thank her forever for that. And I'm happy I I I can give it back. Most people are most you know, going back to the escalator scene when people were helping each other. That is human empathy and compassion. And I think we all have it in us. It takes some extreme conditions sometimes for it to come out. But we all have that in us. I think it's beautiful. We're at the 20th anniversary now of 9-11. Are there any events going on to commemorate or to honor that, the, you know, the people that, that lost their lives on that day? 
Yes, there are uh, there are many events going on throughout the country. This specifically in New York, the 9/11 Memorial and Museum will be as they do every year except last year. They'll be reading the names of the 2,977 plus the others killed in 1993 bombing. Uh, they'll be reading those names on the plaza. That is a families only event. The museum will be open again to the families only on the day of September 11th. But around the day of September 11th, the memorial and museum will be open to the public. The memorial and museum will also be doing the two towers of light, I believe on the night of the 10th and the night of the 11th, which if you have not seen that, it's pretty spectacular. And then the Stephen Siller Tunnel to Towers Foundation uh, is doing a numerous events, the biggest of which right now is that the CEO, Frank Siller, whose brother, Stephen Siller, was a hero New York City fireman murdered on September 11th. Frank is walking from the Pentagon to Shanksville, Pennsylvania, to the World Trade Center in New York. It's about 537 miles he's walking. He is 68 years old. He had a heart attack last year. He's in the best shape of anyone that age maybe I've ever met. He's going to make the whole 537 miles. There are events along the way. Every Saturday, they do a remembrance parade in different parts of the East Coast. And when he gets to Staten Island, which is where his family is from, we will be having a welcoming remembrance parade for Frank on, I think it's the 9th. And then on the morning of the 11th, a few of us will walk with him from Staten Island over the Verrazano Bridge into Brooklyn to Squad One, FDMY Squad One, which is where Stephen Siller worked. And we'll have a remembrance ceremony there at Stephen's firehouse. And then we'll walk, retracing Stephen's footsteps to the mouth of the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel the tunnel that Stephen ran through with 60 60 pounds of gear on the morning of September 11th. And Stephen's family will retrace his steps through the tunnel to the other side where we will meet them to the World Trade Center. And then we'll have a remembrance there. So that's kind of like the big event. It's to raise awareness of the Tunnel to Towers Foundation, which is um, my number one charity. And then the other the other big event that has not been done before that the Siller Foundation is spearheading is on the 12th, September 12th, we will be at Ground Zero reading the thousands of names of the first responders who died from 9-11 illness subsequent to 9-11. So that's never been done before. We're going to do that on the 12th. And then later on in November, we're going to read the names at the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. We're going to read the names of the 7,000-plus volunteer military heroes who lost their lives in the global war on terror. That's also never been done before, but we're going to start that tradition now. And every year, we will read the names of those heroes 
who volunteered for Amer- U.S. military for us, for our community. A lot of them were wearing patches sewn onto their uniforms of the NYPD or the Port Authority Police or the New York City Fire Department when they took their last breath. They did that for America, but specifically, they served justice for our community. And starting this year, we will never forget, and we will say every one of their names at the Lincoln Memorial, and we will say thank you to their families. I love that. That Those are names that should never be forgotten. Yes. One last question. You've told this story many times. I know you've done TED Talks. Why do you feel it's important for people to know this? Shortly after 9-11, probably in the days after 9-11, what started appearing in every firehouse and on every firefighter's bumper sticker was the mantra, never forget. And if we don't speak, if I don't have a voice and speak their names loudly, we will forget. I made that promise to them back then, the police officers, the firefighters, and now the military. Because for for us, Scott, September 11th is every day. For example, young Michael Lynch, he grew up without his dad. His brother Jack grew up without his dad. Their mom grew up without the father of her children. She had to do it all on her own. And this is for true for all the families. The nearly 3,000 murdered on September 11th. It's true for all of them. For the 7,300 plus military heroes, the thousands who died from 9-11 illness. All those families live 9-11 every day. And we have to remind America and the world of their heroism and their sacrifice so that we can live in freedom. If, if we don't remind America and the world, then we have failed and they have lost their lives for nothing. Tim Brown, thank you for your service. Thanks for sharing your story. Thank you for having me and and, uh, sharing the story. If you want to check out the charity that Tim mentioned, it's called the Tunnel to Towers Foundation. And the website is t2t.org. That's the letter T, the number two, and the letter T again, dot org. And if you'd like to contact Tim directly, His email address is in the show notes for this episode at whatwasthatlike.com slash 88. And by way of announcement, if you're in the Facebook group, you've probably heard discussion about an upcoming special bonus episode about childbirth. This is where we hear from a bunch of different women about their childbirth experience, what went right and what went wrong. Well, the announcement is that this bonus episode now has a date It'll be published on Friday, October 15, 2021. That's in between the regular episodes. So if you're already subscribed to What Was That Like? That bonus episode will show up automatically wherever you listen to podcasts. 
another good reason to subscribe because that way you never miss a show. Now, there's something I want to mention here before we get to this week's listener story, and it's this. I never want what you hear on this podcast to be boring or predictable. And I see those as two different things. For the never be boring part, I try to take care of that in advance by being very picky about the stories I talk about on the podcast. Believe me, for every story you actually hear, there are like 50 that I had to reject. And there are lots of reasons for that, but that's just how it is. The way I look at it, one of my jobs as the host here is to protect you, my listener, from being bored. And just between you and me, out of all my listeners, you're my favorite. But the other thing is, I don't want it to be predictable. You know how when you're watching an action movie and the hero character gets captured by the bad guy and it looks like there's no way out for him? Well, even though it looks like it's the end of the road for the hero, you know in the back of your mind, and having watched a hundred movies like this before, that there's no way the main character is actually going to be killed. You just know something's going to happen. Someone you thought was already dead turns out to be alive and saves his or her life, or the bad guy slips and falls into the alligator pond, or something. But the end result is that the good guy wins and everyone's happy including the production company, because that means they make more money when they make the crappy sequel. Well, that's not how it always goes here on this podcast. Really, the only thing you can predict accurately is that the guest for the episode made it out alive, obviously, since I'm talking to that person. But other than that, things might turn out good, or they might turn out not so good. What we're talking about here is real life, true stories. And real life doesn't always have a happy ending. But I'd rather talk about reality than have a Hollywood scripted ending. I hope that's the way you like it too. If you have any comments about that, agree or disagree, please come over to the Facebook group and let's talk about it. Whatwasthatlike.com slash Facebook. And now, this week's listener story. Stay safe. I'll see you here in two weeks. Hello everyone, my name is Natalia, I'm Brazilian, and I work as an English teacher here in Brazil. The story I'm going to tell you happened a couple of years ago when I was starting out in a new job, an English course, and during one of my classes, I had a very bad bellyache. So in the short break between two classes, I ran to the bathroom to relieve myself and the bathroom was connected to the teacher's room where all of my colleagues were gathered waiting for the next class to start. So I was really embarrassed of opening the door and let everybody smell the reminiscent odor of my diarrhea. So I had the idea of opening the bathroom's window to let the wind circulate a little before opening the door. But the window was stuck. It was like glass made and it was stuck. And as I tried to force it, it fell. <laughs> it fell and it broke into a million pieces on the ground and everybody heard the noise and they knocked on the door, asked if I was all right, so I had to open it. And, well, they not only could smell it, 
but they could also see that I was trying to get rid of the smell by breaking the window. So it was really, really humiliating. But I didn't get fired. Uh.